from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Center for European Reform podcast. My name is Luigi Scazzieri, and I'm a senior research fellow at the Center for European Reform. This episode is going to be about the interplay between EU enlargement and EU reform. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has revitalized enlargement, putting new momentum behind the policy. Ukraine and Moldova became candidates for EU membership. Georgia has also become much closer to being made a candidate. Enlargement in the Western Balkans has been revitalized, with Bosnia becoming a candidate and Albania and North Macedonia starting accession negotiations after years of waiting. And one of the items on the agenda of EU leaders when they meet later this month is going to be whether to open accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova, as the European Commission has recommended. And all this is happening in a context where many European leaders have referred to how enlargement is now a geopolitical necessity after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, saying that Europe can no longer afford to have gray zones between itself and Russia. And at the same time, however, leaders have stated that enlargement is linked to the EU's absorption capacity. And some of them, particularly France and Germany, have made clear that they think the EU needs to reform before it can admit new members. And the issue, of course, is that reforms require all members to agree, which puts the EU in perhaps a little bit of a conundrum. To unpack all these, I have two of my colleagues with me today, Charles Grant, the director of the CER, and Camino Mortera Martinez, the head of our Brussels office. So thank you both very much for joining me today. Perhaps let me start with Charles. You've become more pessimistic about enlargement recently after some of your travels. So maybe you can start by explaining why that is. Of course. Well, personally, I'm like all Brits in favour of enlargement, whether Britain's in the EU or not, Brits tend to be in favour of it. And I think it's a great idea. And I think von der Leyen is right to make the geostrategic case for enlarging to prevent these grey zones you referred to, to the east of the EU and the southeast of the EU, becoming very nasty places subject to the influence of Russia or others. So I think it's a good idea. I'm all for it. But I'm very worried because although most EU governments now are talking the talk and saying enlargement is a great idea and it should happen at some point when the candidates meet the required criteria. I'm getting a bit sceptical that it actually will happen. The process is very complicated. Every single stage of the enlargement process has to be approved by all 27 members of the EU. So, for example, for each candidate, there are 35 chapters that need to be opened and closed covering areas like, you know, justice or foreign policy or competition policy or whatever. And each of these chapters, if any one member state dissents and doesn't want to move ahead and open the chapter, they can stop it being opened. And similarly, they can stop the chapters being closed. So you just need one member state to be difficult and stroppy and bloody minded. And then the whole thing stops. And I think really there are two sets of reasons why I'm a bit pessimistic, Luigi. One is the issue of reform you referred to. France and Germany and many other members, I think, particularly those who believe in an integrated European Union, don't think that you should enlarge unless there is significant institutional reform. What they really mean, more than anything else, is more majority voting, the more removal of national vetoes. 
But when you talk to governments, as I've talked to on my recent travels, are you willing to give up your veto on tax policy, which matters a lot to the French, or give up your veto on foreign policy, which matters a lot to the Germans? The answer is no. And I think at least half the member states are reluctant to give up their vetoes. And I wonder whether really France and Germany will be so keen to proceed with enlargement if it, it turns out that decision making is not going to be, in my view, significantly reformed. I mean, there are, of course, compromises and fudges and on foreign policy. Officials have got clever ideas like constructive abstention and emergency breaks and so on. There are perhaps ways of fudging it. But I think in essence, I don't see significant institutional reform happening before enlargement happens. The second set of issues is about the reform of the EU's policies, particularly the farming policy and the regional funds. The impact of particularly Ukraine joining more than the Balkan countries on the common agricultural policy and the regional funds as they exist today would be enormous. Various calculations have been done and essentially Ukraine and the EU being a very poor country with lots of farmers would soak up a huge proportion of the current farming and regional funds of the European Union, leaving very little left for those countries that currently benefit from these funds. And I worry about the impact of that on public opinion in the European Union, in particular when voters start to see that enlargement means they get much less structural funds, regional funds, they get much less from the farming funds as well. Will they really continue to be pro-enlargement? I think voters may let us know the answer to that question. We've just seen the general election in the Netherlands, a lot of people voting for Geert Wilders' party, which is essentially anti-enlargement. So I do worry about public opinion and we can't ignore public opinion. I don't think Europe's leaders are giving much of a lead in trying to persuade voters of the case for enlargement at the moment. And of course, let's not forget that in France, no country, according to the French constitution, can join the European Union without a referendum or a two-thirds vote in both houses of the French parliament. And I think the chances of getting enlargement through either with a referendum or a parliamentary vote in France are quite small. So all in all, I'm getting rather gloomy that although leaders say they want to enlarge the European Union, when they and their voters are confronted by the actual practical implications of the EU, some of them may lose their enthusiasm. And in private, I have to say, quite a lot of top officials in the EU are a lot more sanguine and a lot more pessimistic about the prospect of enlargement than they are in their public statement or than they or their political leaders are on their public statement. So all in all, I hope enlargement happens, but I'm rather worried that it may not happen in the way people are planning, at least not for a very long time. Thank you, Charles. That's really put a lot of issues on the table. And there does seem to, in a sense, be that this juncture between the high-level political debate and the messaging that leaders use in public and perhaps what's being said and thought in more private settings. But turning to you, Camino, now, I know you've done a lot of thinking about the link between EU reform and enlargement and that you're writing a report on this. So what are the key issues that you've been thinking about when discussing this? Thanks, Luigi. Basically, just before I start, I'm really happy that Charles and I agree on this because he used to be much more optimistic throughout the whole process. And I was always a little bit more cautious, thinking that indeed when both politicians and voters will have to face the trade-offs in between, well, a large man actually reforming it, they would realize that not all was going to be a walk in the clouds. And to illustrate this, I always use one example, which is a bit obscure probably, but not for our listeners if they have followed our episodes in the past, which is the European political community that Luigi, you have written so much about. So when Macron underwent his conversion into an enlargement enthusiast, you may remember that he came up with this idea of the European political community, which is not something new, but it was basically a meeting of heads of state and government of all around Europe to show a united front to Russia. Then at some point, the EPC became a little bit less of a hype thing for the French government, I think, also because the Brits and the Turks are really enthusiastic about it. And I think the French thought they were losing control of the whole thing in the first place. 
But if you look at the very important Franco-German reports on enlargement and reform, which was prepared by a group of 12 experts commissioned by the governments of France and Germany, and paid, by the way, not linked officially to the governments, but sort of like conveying Franco-German thinking, you will see that the EPC is sort of making a comeback. And it's sort of making a comeback in one of the two models that are being considered in order to think this enlargement way through. I think these two models, which I will describe in a second, corresponds pretty much with the two camps that Charles was talking about between member states. We've got those who are saying there is no way that we can do any enlargement whatsoever without reforming the European Union. And there you have France, you have Germany, but you also have the Belgians. I would say the Dutch. <laughs> now I'm not entirely sure. Possibly the Italians, the Spanish as well, and some others. And then you've got the other camp where you have countries saying we need to follow this geopolitical imperative as Ursula von der Leyen puts it and do enlargement, quote unquote, at all price. Now, as I was saying, we have two different models of integration at the moment, which have been thought along the lines of these two dividing camps. The first one is the phase in accession, the stage accession, which is the one where candidate members would start by joining some parts of the European Union, some policies, and then eventually get to be full members. Now, this has the obvious benefit for candidate members of being something that they can deliver, they can sell to their populations quite quickly, and we can see the benefits of them joining quite quickly as well. And it has the downsides, in my opinion, that this would be done without reforming any of these policies. And as Charles said, some of them, particularly the common agricultural policy, but also the internal market and other policies, will be very unbalanced if a country like Ukraine would join. That's why I think we've got the other model that has been floated around and that is gaining traction in Brussels and EU capitals if enlargement is going to happen that said, if Orban is not going to block the whole thing, which is the idea that you could have some sort of like a, an inner core of more integrated EU members, which could actually go even beyond what's in the treaties right now, and then sort of have outer circles where you could have candidate members sort of have a different phases of accession. And that's where the EPC has come back into the conversation as one of these outer circles, which in my opinion, what it gives is an indication that perhaps, and only perhaps, the French and the German governments were not as enthusiastic, especially the French, as they said about enlargement. But what is for sure, Luigi, is that without reforming some parts of European Union policymaking and also of the European Union policies themselves, enlargement this time around is going to be very, very complicated politically. Thank you, Camino, for giving us an insight into all your work. So a couple of follow-ups on what you both said. So perhaps first, more to Charles. I mean, how often does the war itself come up as an obstacle? Because it seems to me that all these discussions are taking place, but sort of assuming that the war is over or that it ends in a way that actually makes EU enlargement possible. But that seems to me to be subordinate to there being some kind of security guarantee to Ukraine, which ultimately means that America would be willing to give that guarantee. Because as we've seen, the guarantee of EU membership isn't taken particularly seriously, given that we have Sweden and Finland either having joined NATO or in the process of joining NATO. And secondly, perhaps just to unpack the point of reforms, and it's a question that I want to pose to you both, maybe putting forward the counter-argument. Are they all going to be so difficult? Because you could imagine a scenario, as Charles hinted at, where many of the issues about voting are kind of fudged, 
Maybe the vetoes are not completely scrapped, but they are watered down. The budgetary questions are very big, but you could see how they might be solved by a mix of perhaps very long transition periods, capping payments, and also the candidate countries getting much richer by the time they would actually join the EU, so perhaps being eligible for smaller payments. So do you also see maybe possible compromises on these issues that might smooth the path? Because the one issue that I can't really see a very easy solution to in the end is the rule of law and the fact that if you have some members still being able to keep the process hostage or to wield vetoes in a way that make the EU very dysfunctional, that's what actually would be the biggest block in the end, to my mind. But just to bounce these off you. So Charles, you go first. Let me start by responding to something Camino said. I agree with Camino that I think the concentric circle model is probably the way the EU is going to go. There'll be some countries that maybe join parts of the EU certain policies, certain funding arrangements before they're full members with voting rights. I think that is quite likely. And from what I hear, whether the Balkan countries, including Albania, would happily, at least in the short and medium term, accept half membership as a better alternative to no membership at all. I think that will happen. And I agree with Camino that the political community, the EPC, is quite an interesting development as a kind of outer rim of these concentric circles. But that doesn't alter the fact that enlargement is still something you're either in or you're not. Even with the concentric circle model, one of the rings is EU membership. And you can't fudge that. Either you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. Either you're in the EU or you're not. Whether or not as a candidate, you might be in the outer rim of the EPC or as a core member like France or Germany might integrate even further in the greater, what the French call a noyau dur, a kind of hardcore right in the middle built around the euro or something else. So I think you don't get away from that fundamental problem. And I think I'm still sceptical that the EU itself will let in many more members anytime soon. As for the point about the war, Luigi, I think both geographical zones where we're talking about enlargement, namely the Eastern Europe and the Western Balkans, are problematic. At the moment, everybody's very pro-Ukraine because everybody sympathises with its predicament having been attacked by Russia. But if and when the war is over, and I don't think Ukraine can join the EU while the war is still continuing, really, for the reasons you've alluded to, if and when the war is over, will the EU countries still be so positive about Ukrainian membership when they see that it is a country with a serious problem of corruption, application of the rule of law and some autocratic tendencies in the regime? I wonder if there'll be so much enthusiasm when the war is over. I hope there is and I hope that Ukraine continues to reform as it has obviously done a lot to reform itself, and a lot to improve the way it runs itself and improve its governance. Its performance has been quite impressive. But if it doesn't maintain that pace, there will be those who say that we really want Ukraine in the EU. And equally for the Western Balkans, I think the Germans have said, and the former members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, like Austria, Hungary, Croatia and Slovenia have said, they're not going to have Ukraine joining the EU unless some of the Western Balkans join at the same time, which is a perfectly reasonable idea of geographical balance. The problem is the Western Balkan countries have not done so much to reform themselves as Ukraine has. Perhaps Albania and North Macedonia have done a bit, but most of the Western Balkan countries have not done very much and they're not really ready to join the EU. So my worry is if we have to say, well, we're not getting Ukraine until the Western Balkans is ready, we may have to wait a very long time because I'm not sure when the Western Balkans is going to be ready. I think, as you rightly referred to, Luigi, the rule of law issues are very serious. And I think the application of the rule of law is very difficult in these Balkan countries. Just recently, we saw the European Commission recommending that the EU start Session talks with Bosnia. That surprised many people because Bosnia is not necessarily ready to start accession talks in the views of many. It's a country with a lot of problems of poor governance and so on and ethnic tensions. Why did the Commission recommend that? Because of the Austro-Hungarian Empire countries said, well, we're not going to agree to start talks with Ukraine unless Bosnia starts at the same time. So that just shows you how political the process is, how even if in theory enlargement is an objective process managed by the Commission on objective criteria, it's a merit-based process where the countries most deserving join the EU before those that are undeserving. Dirty 
political deals intrude on the process and create a lot of uncertainties to what's actually going to happen in the long run. Yes, Charles, I just want to go straight to Camino. Yeah, thank you, Luigi. Let me challenge you on two assumptions. I don't think it's going to be that easy to fudge the whole question of voting processes and the budgets. On the votes, I do understand and I do appreciate the efforts being made to try to avoid vetoes and try to avoid the problems that we've seen for the past three years or more with especially Poland and Hungary exercising what I call a blackmail veto rather than a normal veto that we have seen in the European Union for years. I'm not entirely sure that if you apply this qualified majority voting, even if you get to that, or, you know, the idea of the pastoral clause, how do you activate a pastoral clause that stops you from needing unanimity when you need unanimity to trigger it in the first place. But let's imagine that we get to uh, some sort of compromise or fat, as you said, on QMV, uh, qualified majority voting on foreign policy, for example. I'm not entirely sure how this would work in practice, because at the end of the day, if you force a country to be outvoted, for example, on sanctions, there is nothing holding back that country from just not applying sanctions. So that to me would just make... European Union foreign policy a little bit less credible than it is. And we've seen that with the so-called migration quotas in 2015, when the Visegrad countries were outvoted and they never implemented the quotas despite having a court's ruling, uh, sort of like trying to force them to do that. So that's the first challenge that I would have for your assumptions. And the second one is the budgets. I'm not entirely sure that you can redraw the budgets that easily, especially at the moment with all the problems that we've seen, with Germany being constrained because of constitutional courts rulings, and other countries having much more more Euro-critic or Euro-skeptic even governments, we're seeing that the midterm revision of the budget, which is going to happen in this month's council, is being extremely controversial. So I'm not entirely sure whether you might be able to get a country. Once again, I think that the country that is causing the most questions is Ukraine. We are talking about smaller countries like the Western Balkans. It's a different question in terms of population and budgets. I do agree with you that there are two main problems when it comes to the reform of the whole thing. The first one, I think, is more towards voters and externally on the how do you get the buy-in from citizens on enlargement. And this applies to what we're talking about, the common agricultural policy that is going to be highly contentious. But also you're going to have countries that are now receiving EU money that are going to become net contributors, which are wary as well of these questions and how they're going to sell these questions to their voters. The rule of law, in my view, but that's because I'm biased, because I've been working on this for such a long time, it's going to be the most important problem internally. I think the rule of law can be a question that will be on, if you want, campaigning about enlargement, if there is ever such a thing in member states, regarding, for example, the use of European Union's taxpayer money. And this could happen very well in Germany, in Sweden, or even in Belgium, which are have been countries that traditionally have questioned where is my money going and why are we funding autocrats like Orban and others. But I think the most important issue on that question of the rule of law is how to avoid the so-called Copenhagen dilemma, which I think is more of a paradox, which means that you have to comply with all the Copenhagen criteria until you get a seat around the European Council. And there you have a veto right, right? And then you can do whatever you want. I think the cases of Hungary and Poland and other cases that are emerging at the moment have really, really hurt the European Union and have left quite a lot of scars when it comes to the political process of how to rein in those two countries. So how to make sure that even if, you know, Ukraine or whichever other country reforms spectacularly and they are a poster child of reforms, anti-corruption, 
and rule of law compliance, like Poland was when they entered the European Union, how to make sure that they don't backslide is the big question. And to me, there is no way to make sure that this doesn't happen unless you reform the treaties, which is not something that we have talked about in this podcast, but it's obviously one of the many elephants in the room. And because of that, there's a lot of work that has been done on what we do about the several different methods that we have to kick somebody out if they don't comply or like stop them from not complying in the first place. And I think that's going to be a massive stumbling block when it comes to thinking about the whole process and when the whole process becomes more real as opposed of just having discussions in a more theoretical or political level that we are having. Can I respond immediately to a couple of Camino's very interesting points? On the rule of law, I agree with Camino, it's going to be a big issue when it comes to enlargement or not enlargement. I think countries like the Netherlands, Belgium and some of the Nordic countries will make it an absolutely sine qua non for further enlargement is improving compliance with the rule of law. But as Camino knows, I'm sceptical about the ability of the EU to change the treaties to actually modify the existing procedures, such as the famous Article 7 procedure, which has failed to stop Hungary and Poland doing the things they shouldn't have been doing, because treaty change requires unanimity. And I think a lot of countries don't want to change the treaties, like most countries don't want to change the treaties. And you can, as we've discussed earlier, change the voting rules through using the so-called passerelle clauses, but that also requires unanimity to activate those clauses. So I just don't see treaty change happening. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see it happening that way. On the other question Camina mentioned about the EU budgetary questions, there I'm slightly less pessimistic than I am on institutional reform. I think in a way you can actually fudge budget issues for a while anyway. I think Poland today, although it joined the EU in 2004, still doesn't get the full whack of farming funds applied in the same way that France receives farming funds today. 20 years after Poland joined, its farmers are not getting as much money as French farmers get per unit of production. And I think that if you phase in the right of new member states to receive regional and farming funds over many decades, then the pain for existing members is probably bearable at least for a decade or two. So I think with a bit of fudge and postponement and kicking things down the road, it's probably conceivable to imagine that countries could join the EU without breaking the budget, at least for the medium term. In the long run, the problem still remains. But although I'm very pessimistic about enlargement, I'm not sure that the budgetary questions are the most difficult questions. Thank you, Charles, and thank you, Camino. I think you're both effective in rebuffing my attempt to be a little more optimistic, sadly, which just shows the conundrum that the EU is in, I think. But we do have to leave it there for today. So thank you both for coming on the podcast and thanks to all our listeners don't forget to rate us to send us any feedback that you have and indeed to subscribe if you're not doing so already thank you and goodbye thank you for listening to the CER podcast if you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode then you can find us on twitter at CER underscore EU